How'd your time lapse come out? Wait, no, nope, don't answer. everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I fucked up my time lapse. Uh, hold on. All right. Live? <laughs> I think we're, yeah, I think we, uh, we are live. Justin has finally joined us. Merck has been waiting patiently to start this one. <laughs> Sorry about that. And uh, today we have Pete DeMola, a reporter uh, from the Daily Gazette. He's got quite the, uh, how do you explain it? The experiences that you have gone through. Uh, he's lived in China. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, but say hi, Pete. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah. <clears throat> Walk through yeah. these uh, humongous snow banks on the way here. First time out today. <laughs> Wild, aren't they? Three feet of snow here in Schenectady. Yeah. Almost. An easy, what, 8 to 12 inches, right? Well, the mayor said it was 31. Yeah. It's exactly. 31. So... <laughs> There was a car spinning out right here in front of the uh, the pub. Really? Came in. You didn't help him? They didn't ask for my help, and he got it out, and he was good, and he made it, and there was four cruisers sitting right in front of City Hall, wondering what they're doing. So, <laughs> I told you they were waiting for you. Wonderful time to be here in Schenectady. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a war zone out Pete. there. Pete, nice to virtually meet you. Likewise, Justin, nice to meet you as well. You guys, you guys met before, haven't you? Yeah, we might cross paths at the uh, JSP. The old JSP. Mm -hmm. I like your wreath. That's. <laughs> that's <laughs> Thank the, you. Did you make it, did, Justin? Did you make that? Nope. Nope. I did not make that. A lot cooler if you did. Yep. I was uh, telling Mark the extent of my uh, Christmas decorating is cutting the birch tree in half and putting the candles on the uh, table. <laughs> you know, I'm looking around the pub now, and uh, there's doesn't really seem too festive in here, man. I mean, what's going on with that? Well, I'm not open. <laughs> well, you're here. Well, I I'm here. The door is locked. We have lights and cameras around. From what people can't see, there there's actually more that happens to make it look like <laughs> what you're seeing now. You know, you could do that thing at Home Alone when they were Kevin was home alone and he was like pulling on like the, <laughs> the strings, the, the strings, and making everything like go in the background. That's what I should do when we get like uh, shut down again. Just have a Get all the phone calls. This bar is open. <laughs> I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> no, nah, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to do that. Yeah. No. So, uh, mm -hmm. so Merck. Well, first question. If money didn't matter, what would you be doing right now? That's a great question, Merck. If money didn't matter, what would I be doing now? I'd probably be living the Anthony Bourdain lifestyle traveling around the world, eating a bunch of great food, uh, street food, talking to local folks. and Really? Yeah. Huh. Where would you go first? Probably go to Japan. Yeah. Tokyo first. Have you been there before? I have, briefly. Not as not as much as I'd like to, uh, to have done so, but... What's the highlight of Japan? The highlight of Japan. It's a pretty broad question. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. That's something I'd have to think about. I would say, you know, just kind of like the density and the sheer volume of people, mm -hmm. right? And like the sheer vastness of humankind just crammed into it, one block. 
and Japan moves at a pace like you've never experienced. Exactly. It's just so lightning quick and and it's a clean city. It's clean. Tokyo is a clean and city. Quiet, right? I don't know if I'd call it quiet. I might call it Yeah. I mean compared to New York City. Mm-hmm. Let, me think, let me think about that. We can circle back. <laughs> no, I mean if I didn't have any money, I mean don't you think it'd be great to just kinda I mean if I didn't have to worry about money to just kinda travel around leisurely, talk to people, yeah. Get get like a window into Absolutely. their lives and, and just kinda you know the thing I like about Anthony Bourdain is uh you know, just very down to earth and you know, compassionate, right? And mm-hmm. non judgmental mm-hmm. and just talking to the real people on the streets. And what brought you to, not to go back to it, what brought you to Japan though? Oh well I lived in Beijing for a long time. So oh, okay. that's right, yeah. Just telling me that. To Beijing, uh, to Japan for a few one off trips, nothing. So what kind of foods stand out when you think of uh traveling to try the foods? Oh man. You know, I think uh, obviously in Japan it's the, the fish culture, right? Mm-hmm. Fresh mm-hmm. fish. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know the, uh, I don't speak Japanese, <laughs> and I'm not familiar with the language. But there's like these, uh, you know, culture of like small snack shops, and each of them have their own kind of like very cultivated menu item that they offer. But whether it be like, uh, you know. Uh, like a a pancake, not you know comparable fish to pancakes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a fish, fish pancake, a fish pancake, or mm, you know they, a, they've got like <laughs> they've got these like what in English we I guess we'd refer to as like skewers, right? And everything in Japan in their culture is so very precise, and you know these guys spend years, if not decades, honing their craft. And I listened to another podcast recently. Uh, I think it's called Japan Eats, and they they went into it. Really? So they interviewed this, like, skewer master who just spent his entire career, like, working on, like, the perfect, like, chicken skewer. His entire career. His entire career. Um, When I lived in Beijing, uh, you know, uh, we we used to go to this, like, new Japanese uh, whiskey bar. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was new. And you'd have the bartender carving the ice by hand. Like, just very precise. Really? Right? And it always struck me as that level of, like, precision and dedication was Mm -hmm. admirable. If that makes any sense. Were were these trips uh, for pleasure or for business? Well, I worked in, in Beijing uh, as a reporter, like I do now, except I was doing pop culture reporting. So not uh, for for a little while, I was doing business reporting, but mainly pop culture. Can you um, can you speak Chinese? Mandarin would it be Mandarin. Okay,说中国话。我们我们南部南现在说话。what did you That's say? Awesome. Yeah, what'd you say? I said, can we speak? Should we do the uh should we do the interview in Chinese? <laughs> Subtitle oh, it. Geez. No, but um you know, living in Beijing, mm. it's like real close to Korea, Japan. Mm. You know, so we'd occasionally go hop across. Is it quick? Yeah, it'd be comparable to you know, going over to, to Seoul or Tokyo, flying to maybe Chicago. Okay. Oh really? So what? Let's take a step back. Before you got into reporting, um, what actually ended up bringing you over there? Was it the reporting that brought you to Beijing? Like, how did you find that opportunity? I, I mean, I admit I was kind of like a slacker. Still, I'm a slacker. And I uh, went to Syracuse University, and finally, kind of the light dawned on me. You know, at the end of senior year, that you probably needed to do something 
mm-hmm. once you got out of college. And I, you know, was going to do that typical grad school route and I uh, ended up seeing this advertisement online, like, go teach English in China, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't into teaching, nor did I ever aspire to be a teacher, but I signed up for this program, got in, and I did it. Uh, I ended up getting sent to this, like, total provincial backwater um, in a province called Hubei Province. And this backwater, this really kind of town that I compare it to, like... Uh, when you say backwater... Just like an unsophisticated podunk kind of place. Uh, they put me in this place about four hours south of Beijing, and the school was like just totally not run the right way. Uh, in Shanghai, we had this orientation uh, with the people in the program before us. And these, there was like three guys, and they were like, good luck with that, dude. You're on your own. Um, the guy, you know, they just gave me these horror stories, and I, I got there, and I was just like, everything that was supposed to be above ground was not. Like I didn't have the proper paperwork. I didn't have the proper visa. They weren't you know, offering other things that were supposed to be offered. The guy was totally crooked. All these horror stories. So I ended up just being there for like two and a half months and I left on my own. And I got into a train without knowing anything. Mm-hmm. And just getting on a train and through a contact, they kind of hooked me up with another job that would like be stable of like, <laughs> You know, you're going to get to this job and you could, you know, teach and you're not going to get kicked out of the country for not having a visa. You're not going to get sold into indentured labor or anything like that. <laughs> it's going to be good. So I did that. Um, you you wanted to stay there. Yeah, I did because I felt like, um, you know, I can give you a concrete example. It's like, uh, you know, all, you know, I came to China with like a group of people in this program. And all of them, you know, got jobs at university and they'd work like a typical day. And it'd be like, you're working, you know, Monday from like eight to two and you have a Chinese class and then you have tomorrow off. And then, you know, here's your schedule. But I'd been there for weeks. They'd never give me a schedule. Hmm. And they would just call me and be like, you have to be at the school, like, you know, three miles away. Now. Now. <laughs> and it just seemed off to me. And they just kept stringing me along. And the whole operation was just crooked. And this is this is where you originally were. Yeah. And I, it didn't take me being a, you know, I think a rather astute person could have determined that it was like a pretty fairly crooked operation. Yeah. And it just didn't sit right. So, like I said, I left, got to another place. And then at that time, that took me into, like, the end of the, end of the academic year. And I'm like, well, you know, my original goal was to go back to the States you know, do go back to grad school, but I, I don't feel like I got a fair shake at this whole China thing. So I ended up moving to Beijing, uh, where a buddy of mine hooked me up with a job at a college, and that's where things kind of took off, to where I did another year of teaching, and then I got into journalism and reporting from there and never looked back. How many years were you there? I was in, Be- I was in China from August of 05, and I left um, at the beginning of 20. 20- 12, I believe. Okay. Oh, wow. So you're there for about seven years. That's a yeah. quite the stint. Was this Crooked Company uh, run on the Chinese side or was it run by the U.S.? It was run on the Chinese side. Okay. So, I mean, essentially, this was 15 years ago. So at that time, I mean, China was like the Wild West. And it was like a boom town. And they were only, you know, getting their, their 
their sea legs when it came to opening up to foreigners and attracting investment. And at the time, they, they really needed kind of like that language kind of ability. And it was just like a total Wild West operation with like language schools and, um, you know, the, the sheer raw demand for like foreign talent. Mm-hmm. It's kind of not the same now. It's 15 years later. So you have an entire generation who's grown up speaking English. You know, these kids are have already now gone to the United States and gotten their Ivy League educations and are heading back. Mm-hmm. So the culture is kind of shifting. But at that time, I mean, like any fly-by-night two-bit operation could kind of open up and advertise themselves as like a language school. Okay. And people would just get sucked well, right in. They'd say, oh, we have a foreign teacher. Because the, the city that I lived in, even though it was four hours south of, of Beijing, a lot of them had never even seen a foreigner before. Really? So it was almost like uh, you were like a, a zoo animal. <clears throat> and Or a superstar. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, this is very provincial. Um, so they would you know, whatever their marketing materials were, they would tout, like, we have some guy from New York, you know, he's, like, going to teach your kids the best English, the greatest English. <laughs> and, you know, the whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, again, in in American culture, we're very assertive and, you know, we're very, like, we are who we are. I'm getting brought into the situation where I'm just kind of kept, like, in this dingy apartment building, <laughs> you know, like, three miles away, and they call, like... Hey, we need you here now. We need you here now. And I'd come in and there'd be, like... 40 kids, you know. What age? It was, they were young. They were like six, seven, eight years old. Oh, really? And you come in and you'd be like, what do you want me to do? And they just say, say a few words, you know. That's it. So there was no, it was totally bizarre. I mean, it was like, you just say like, hello, and they, everybody would laugh and clap. And <laughs> it was just like, I mean, I can go on and on about these stories, but it was not anything that could be remotely described as like teaching or educational whatsoever. So... It was just a completely... What do you want me to do? Say warped, hello. Warped universe, you know. <laughs> Back in Beijing... So, go ahead. No, no. so I was just going to ask, when you left that and you got into Beijing and you were covering, like, hip-hop and the culture there, yeah. there had to have been some wild stories there because, obviously, Beijing's a hot spot for the nightlife. What yeah. was that like? Yeah, well, I... Um, so I, I put in a year at, like, a, a college teaching, and th- by that time I was on my way to, like, full-time reporting. Um, starting in, in, you know, 07, I was a full-time pop culture reporter, never looked back. Mm-hmm. Um, my reporting really kind of geared up heading into the Olympics, the 20, 2008 uh, Summer Olympic Games. Okay. So, you know, you want to talk about the nightlife. It was, it was bonkers. Really? It would be, at that time, I was working for a magazine. Um, and what the clubs would do is... They really wanted the PR from the celebrities who would come in as part of the Olympics. Okay. So a lot of the time, you'd be sitting there, it's 9, 10 o'clock at night, and you get a, a call from like a publicist from one of the clubs. He'd be like, oh, like David Beckham's here. Really? Yeah. David Beckham's here. So they were having pe- people who were for the Olympics from other countries coming yeah. out. Yeah. Interesting. And it was all a big competition as to... I think, were they supposed to be leaving the, the campus, the, the Olympic campus? Yeah, it was, there was really, you know, a lot of the restrictions were more for the domestic population as opposed to the, to the athletes. Hmm. But, we, you know, we get, we get tipped off, almost like a very, you know, paparazzi-esque thing. Because really? they wanted that PR and mm-hmm. the buzz to say, oh, David Beckham's at my club. And yeah. We go, we get a photo, we get it online, mm-hmm. and they get buzzed. So, I mean, that was kind of, uh, 
that was kind of interesting. That was all your was your work censored? Yes. <laughs> were you reporting for America or were you reporting for other Chinese uh, companies or it's a great question I got I got the the start doing uh, freelance for uh, actually my first real gig was a, jo- a newspaper in Seattle it was oh. called the Northwest Asian Weekly huh. and I pitched them like a regular pop culture column and they, they bit at it really? so I kind of used that to kind of build up Reporting. Now, now, when you say pop culture, yeah, what, what I mean, what is that? Uh, music, art, youth subculture, okay, uh, fashion, design, art, comics, that type of thing. Okay, so it's pretty pretty. Yeah, anime, anime is big over there. So, like, were you into any of this stuff yourself personally before you started covering it, or was it like a whole new horizon for you? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I've always been attracted to. You know, I got my start writing about music and rock and roll and that type of thing. So I think that's why I kind of gravitated towards that type of reporting because mm-hmm. that's what I was into, right? Yeah. So I wasn't going to go seek out anything else. Yeah, it just comes natural. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, to answer your question about, like, you know, domestic or international, uh, you know, again, I, I'm a slacker, man. I've been winging it my whole life, you know? <laughs> and. I, you know, got the job freelancing, right, with this, with this newspaper. And then I, I kind of, you know, there's other foreign uh, English language media outlets there for, like, the expat culture. Where do you go eat? Where do you go drink? Okay. Where do you go to have a good time? So that those are the, the kind of publications that I wrote for. There was a six-month slot where I got a job at a business magazine. And they would kind of fly me around the country to do these, like, stories on business reporting. Chinese? Yeah. Uh, Chinese company Chinese company that hired you that hired me okay um, that kind of gave way to a brief stint at a magazine uh, and then kind of at my tail end of uh, the, the country I spent a few years uh, working for like a social media company okay uh, this would have been oh nine ten eleven and it was kind of like you know uh, similar to Facebook okay what's it um, called it was called we live in Beijing it's no longer operational okay but it was, uh, you know, basically like a hookup platform. Really? Yeah. Where Tinder before Tinder. Somewhat. I mean, the way that I always kind of incorporated it was, <clears throat> was you know, kind of like Facebook meets like Slate.com, which is like a news platform. Where okay. my job was to do a lot of the writing, you know, and you have a lot of pop culture reporting, a lot of articles and things like that. But then you also have that social kind of media component mm-hmm. that people used for hookup culture. No kidding. Like, hey, we'll meet here. Yeah. So we, cool we, bar. we did a lot of events. So um, we have events all the time. So we'd have these, like, massive parties where we'd be, like, at the J Street Pub. <laughs> and it's, like, a the place to be, right? You want to be at the J Street Pub because we live in Beijing is there. Okay. And then... Oh, okay. All right. Kind of like Barstool Sports. If Barstool is here. I'd be like, hey, yeah. let's, let's so, we all gotta go there. You know, we meet with the, uh, the club owner. We work out a deal. Mitch, we have this event. Do you want to do like a, you know, you want to t- cut of the ticket sales or how do you want to do it? And we just pack massive amounts of people, you know, book live music, DJs. It was a good time. That's so. a good time. We go Did you ever consider going into like the actual like food culture and the Anthony Bourdain lifestyle while you were over there and start covering that? That's another great question. I, um, for a while, we, we did do a lot of food reporting. Okay. Yeah. 
but I actually he was my idol. So I never I can't I'd, wait to hear about this. I never actually really knew who he was until you know, believe it or not, until he died. Um, oh. I had kind of heard the name and kind of was a, a familiar with his reputation, but I did read his book after he he died, and I'm like, wow, a lot of that is kind of like kind of what we would do in Beijing, right? Um, so he he kind of feels like a kindred spirit, but you know a lot of like the you know at the time in mainland China, um, you know it was cheaper to go out to eat than to actually cook at home. It's like the reverse. Oh no, okay. than, than here. Why is that? It's because we, even though we were working for. Domestic. When I mean domestic, I mean a Chinese company. We're still making more than the average Chinese person. So the average salary, let's say, 15 years ago in Beijing, let's say that it was like you know, 2,000 RMB a month. You know, we've been making four or five or six. So you know, roughly double. And even then, it's fairly affordable, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, within the single digits for dishes. Hmm. So. It's interesting. We just go out to eat every day. I, I think, you know, there'd be apartments I'd lived in over there where I'd only been in the kitchen like once. I'd like walk by really? the kitchen. Merck, we got we to gotta move there. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is, what's RMB? It's their version of currency, uh, renminbi. It means like yeah. the people's money. Okay. What's that equivalent to? No, I mean, it's been a while. I'd say one one American dollar, I'd say, I think is like seven RMB. Okay. But what's a coffee cost? I mean, at the time, Starbucks would be like, a comparable would be equivalent. Okay. So it'd be like 50 RMB. Right? Uh-huh. Quite. So what ended up, what ended up uh, in 2012 bringing you back to the States? Where Was it something that you chose to do? Was your time up in Beijing? Like, what happened there? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really, uh, at the time, I ended up leaving the job in, in Beijing. I was in a relationship that didn't work out. So, you know, it was just kind of a confluence of events that were like, hmm, things are changing. Uh, a buddy of mine worked at, like, a, a, a Chinese language school down in the south in a city called Guilin, uh, which is comparable. I mean, if you look at China, it, it's kind of shaped a little bit similar to the U.S., right? And it's roughly as big as the U.S. So if you want to put Beijing at like where Boston is, I went to a city called Guilin, which would be comparable to like, I don't know, somewhere in the south, not on the coast, but name a city in like Nashville, the deep south. Oh, deep south. Maybe, maybe like Georgia. Somewhere. Yeah. Like a Montgomery, Alabama. There or you like go. That's perfect. Northern Georgia. <laughs> Montgomery, <laughs> yeah. right? So I went down there because a friend of mine was like, well, I'm just studying Chinese. And this is a friend of mine from college. Uh, and he's like, I'm studying Chinese. Come, you know, come take some time off. Come relax. Come hang out with me. See if you like it. I went down there and it was, you know, very laid back. I mean, I've never actually been to the South here in America, but people say it's laid back and more calm and like more relaxed. Uh, this is like a tropical, you know, climate, palm trees everywhere. So I just kind of hung out and like, did some odd jobs, kind of reflected on life, started studying Chinese, um, did some consulting work, did some writing work, uh, ended up hooking up with a buddy of mine who ran like a, a vinyl record label 
in Beijing and did some marketing and PR for that. Uh, the, you know, I rekindled the relationship with the girl. That didn't work out either. So at that time, I mean, women, man, right? So at that time, I was like about to turn 30. And I was like, I just need to like maybe get my shit together. Can I, I can curse on this podcast, right? Yeah, Is that yes. permissible? Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, so I, and then I had another friend of mine, a long, long time collaborator and friend who lived in Hong Kong which is just not in China at all, right? So I went down there, and I just kind of slacked off for another six months. Uh, they, they had, like, a beach house. So we essentially, uh, he was a screenwriter. Uh, at the time, I was kind of an out-of-work writer, recovering from some of these uh, relationships. <laughs> so for, I mean, I'm not going to lie, for six months, didn't really do much. I worked for the record label, you know, did some freelance writing, spent a lot of time on the beach. And then I came back to the States. Have you always been uh, into writing, like growing up, journaling? and Yeah. yeah. Never thought I would do anything else. Than, than journalism. Yeah. Hmm. And then you went and lived the Anthony Bourdain lifestyle, it sounded like, without even knowing who he was. So, like, I'm <laughs> envious of your background. Oh, man. I, I'm honest. Like, I, I really, I mean, I'd seen him around. I knew that he uh, had a bowl of, like, pho with Obama in Vietnam, mm -hmm. right? That's cool, yeah. And I just never really, you know, again, living in China, you know, we were cut off from a lot of pop culture, right? I mean, this is like 10, 15 years ago. Um, Facebook was blocked at that time. Twitter Twitter was blocked. Twitter was a new thing. Um, so many, you know, news sites were blocked. So we weren't really kind of that dialed into what was going on in the States. I'm not going to say that we were cut off, and there was like a shroud of like kind of secrecy. Mm -hmm. But in terms of like just like the day to day pop cultural stuff happening in terms of like what shows were popular or. Were you able to access them, those sites somehow? Yeah, there's things called like a VPN. Yeah, you OK. Get around you just use those. And the government had no idea that you were using VPNs. I'm not sure. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know that all the operations I ever worked for were just fly by night. Really? Like, Did you have any run-ins with uh, the government or any of the officials you were reporting? Yeah, the one, the one example that I can give in terms of censorship, because people ask me about that a lot, yeah. is that it's self-censoring. You know that you, you know what you can get away with and what you can't get away with. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a few examples. So with the social networking company, uh, we had a, a really popular dating column where we'd, we'd have a Chinese girl and a foreign guy kind of answer questions right interesting like oh my chinese girlfriend blah you know mm -hmm. how do i do this so you've got the the chinese girl giving advice the white guy giving advice and again we were young this is like 10 years ago mm -hmm. so we're just like a bunch of like i don't know renegade troublemakers so we'd always use like the most like pushing the, the yeah envelope. we'd yeah. always use the most like graphic like anime style <laughs> illustration for the column so we picked out one and i'm not going to go into the detail of it because it's very uncouth, <laughs> but it was very graphic and it was like really pushing the, the boundary yeah. in terms of what the image was. Um, and then all of a sudden, our internet just got shut down. Really? So our tech guy, his name was Fu Bin, um, and again, each website that you have to give like a phone number or, or personal information. So if there's any trouble, they can call you this team of people who monitor everything. Really? So this person called, and they were like, okay, that photo is like just not 
Not good. That needs to no go. Bueno. That needs to, <laughs> you need to take that down. So then, you it, know. It was right when you, you guys posted it. it. It was shortly thereafter. And also just. So Fubin is just, like, you need to get this photo off and they'll reinstate our access. So no one could access that website at that time. No. Correct. Wow. So then we, you learn, you know, okay, well, we can't do that again. Yeah. Right? <laughs> there's, like, the, there's the line. There's the line. That's the yeah. line, right? Um, the other example I give is on, like, a more international uh, level is, you know, we, at this time, you know, we were really kind of rooted in, you know, I, I was mainly like a rock and roll concert reviewer. I would hang out mm-hmm. at the bars and the clubs, dive bars, and just write about music all day long. And it really built up like a strong sense of community with the musicians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, July, uh, June 4th is rolling around. That's Tiananmen Square, <clears throat> which is like a topic that is just like you do not talk about that in, really? in China. You don't mention it. It's, it's just like mm-hmm. not taught in schools. It's older folks will know 6-4 what that means where there was massive uprising and tanks came in and mm-hmm. ran people guy. over right you know the guy yeah. standing in front of the tank mm-hmm. but you know there was chatter there was like um in the club that became our clubhouse for a lot of uh, rock and roll shows it was called t22 it was in the student district and you know ahead of that week of, of june 4th there were certain things going into effect like students started having curfews Right, you have to be in your dorm at this time. There'd be internet shutdowns. Things kind of. Why? Why was that? Because they don't want people to draw attention to it. To be like, uh, oh, you know, 20 years ago. Okay. At, at this time would have been the 20th anniversary. Right. Yeah. So it almost, you know, it would almost have like, uh, you know, the Streisand effect, hmm. where the authorities want young people to forget about Tiananmen Square, but they're doing all this like heavy-handed stuff. And it's just bringing right back up. And then people are like, well, why, why is there a curfew? Yeah. In any event, what I'm getting at is in the live music venue that became our hangout, you know, different musicians were kind of like tinkering with different ideas on how to like pay homage to the people who were slaughtered. Mm-hmm. But they knew what the limits were, Right. So they're like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not going to go out on stage and, and say anything, but I might tie like a red scarf around my wrist mm-hmm. or around my microphone stand. And that was allowed. It's self-censorship. Mm. It's a calculation of what can I get away with. And what happens if that wasn't, that didn't, that didn't, that didn't jive? Well, I, I think happen? it comes down to the amount of popularity that, that one movement does, right? Yeah. So like it's a, a small group collectively agrees that they're going to tie a scarf around their wrist sure. but then all, the, all of a sudden that catches on and now you have a large group mm-hmm. the yeah. government's going to pick up on that right yeah, yeah that's accurate and then what they say no more well it's a, a calculation that they know that well I can't get up on stage and say anything overtly about Tiananmen Square mm-hmm. but I think I can get away with tying a red <laughs> scarf around my microphone stand you know, when it goes to reporting, you know what you can and what you can't get away with. Yeah. So with us, we knew that our job was very limited. It was like we're writing about music and art and culture and young people and dating and sex and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So we don't really need to push as many of those envelopes because that's not kind of what our wheelhouse is. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah. So to give an example, 
you know, there was a, a German girl who started hanging out with us, and, you know, she was an anchor for, like, a, a German television station. Mm-hmm. And during this time, she's like, well, I think I'm going to go to, like, Tiananmen Square and do a report on the 20th anniversary. And you were like, no, no, no. And we're like, no, because you're not going to get away with that. Mm-hmm. Like, it's self-censorship. Like, what do you think <laughs> is going to happen on the 20th anniversary of, I mean, what do you, I mean, what's your calculus here? What do you think yeah. is going to happen? So sure enough, um, she went, and then it was very well known at the time. It became very quickly circulated that all the foreign reporters were going to go. Were, would go there and you'd have these security goons with umbrellas just open an umbrella and like stick it in right in front of the camera face right in front of the camera no kidding so it was different because we as a domestic you know pop culture reporting outfit we were just concerned about like having parties and like drinking and listening to rock and roll and we didn't really care to report on any of that stuff so we were good but for the other media outlets at a different sort of circumstances to, to consider if that makes any sense yeah absolutely you were you were treading in the uh the shallow end and they were willing to dive in the deep end with right. uh, no floaties on that's a good way to put it but were you ever worried yeah. about getting arrested for it or well i didn't really report on that stuff so it didn't yeah. w- would they arrest foreign reporters now you know bringing us up to the present i mean the situation you have the new the president Xi Jinping t- who took office in 2012. Now we're in 2020. I mean, he's gotten significantly. He's taken a significantly harder line on reporters in China, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of you know due to like disputes uh, between America and the Chinese government. You know, mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, they're all kind of kicked out of China. They didn't have their visas renewed. Really? Yeah. But that that's more complex than I'm really. Is that more recent? That's this year. Yeah. Because uh, I was listening to a podcast that uh, a Wall Street Journal journalist uh, was being followed trying to report on COVID. Yeah. And they said every time she's like, you could hear him outside her, her hotel room. I mean, again, the, I was just always a pop culture reporter. So yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I mean, I think they looked at us. This is a bunch of like renegade <laughs> slackers of like whatever like yeah. who cares or, I mean, it's not like you, you were flying under the radar yeah they're just like alright they're just writing about rock and roll mm. and like art and shit like yep. that so who cares <laughs> you know like we're gonna focus on the real reporters you know like was there still yeah. a lot of like in the culture here uh, a lot of drug use over there as well you know it was certainly an element I wouldn't say um I mean, there was certainly an element of that in the scene. Um, I wouldn't know if it was, you know, I wouldn't be able to to compare that. But I mean, are there um, drugs like marijuana and cocaine there? I think hash was more common. Um, And I... I'm not a user of any of that. No, I'm about um, the scene in general. But, like, hash was more prevalent from what I understood like just being around and I think that's maybe like a European element okay of the mm-hmm. European influence yeah um, they still do an opium <laughs> I, can't, I can't answer that I don't know I, I do know that <laughs> yeah. I can tell you that um, 
you know, there, there were bar districts. One of the most famous is called Senli Tun. Um, and that was a frequent target for crackdowns for drug use. Okay. To where the authorities would occasionally have raids and they'd block the street off from one end to the other. Right? And then it'd be like, everybody gets searched. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, we kind of do that here in the states as well. There's do we raids like that with underage and stuff like that. Well, pre-COVID, that was a lot more common. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Absolutely. Was it so when 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 you came back in 2012? Um, what was your journey back to the states? Like, tell take us through your year back or your two years back in the states yeah, after you came back. It's a great question. I, um, you know, tried to figure out what I wanted to do. You know, I spend you know almost eight years you spend your entire 20s in another country mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's not easy to to recalibrate especially when you were like you know i don't really have a lot of money i'm just kind of like what do you do now mm-hmm. so i was working uh, a good friend of mine still a good dear friend of mine to this day uh you know he ran like a runs a vinyl record label mm-hmm. uh, so i was working with him on that it's called Genjing Records. And, um, you know, he was always into, like, the DIY, do-it-yourself kind of punk ethos, right? Mm-hmm. And he was one of the guys who ran the club I told you guys about, D22, worked for the record label associated with that club, uh, which kind of really, I don't know if you guys have, have uh, know CBGB's in New York City. Yeah. One of the guys who was involved in that early scene in the city that kind of gave birth to like the whole punk scene with the Ramones and Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, you know, is an academic in China, in Beijing, and he kind of funded that club, you know, really? through his inspiration in the early 70s. And he kind of channeled a lot of that into giving young musicians a platform in Beijing. Hmm. So not only was it a, a place to play music, but also to um, really kind of hone your craft, being granted to experts, and then signing a record deal and putting out a record, touring the country, maybe going on like a small tour of the United States. So a buddy of mine who worked not only at the club, but at the label, started his own label, and I started doing PR for him, right? Uh, writing the press releases, coordinating the interviews, you know, landing interviews with like American media outlets and trying to drum up interest. That's cool. And I did that for a while, and then, you know, eventually I'm just kind of like back in the States, got to get a real job. Kinda <laughs> welcome home. Welcome home. Yeah. This is a good job. You're working for a label. You're doing what you love. But, you know, maybe you got to do something like brick and mortar, right? Mm-hmm. Not online like we're all doing now, yeah. seven years later, but six years later. So I ended up like my parents have like a summer home in Long Lake, uh, in Hamilton County, in the Adirondacks. Okay. So I was just kind of up there trying to figure out what I wanted to do. My parents were like, go to law school, go to law school. <laughs> Probably should have done that. Probably right? should have done that. <laughs> and um, so there's this uh, you know, hotel in the Adirondacks called the Long Lake Hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they had all, you know, stack of like newspapers and magazines and brochures and all that shit. And I was looking at it and I picked up a whole bunch and there's this magazine called North Country Living Magazine. Mm-hmm. And... I, you know, just emailed them, and I'm like, I picked up your magazine. Do you need writers? I don't know. I can write some stuff. And they emailed me back, and they were like, well, do you want a job at the newspaper, or do you want a job at the magazine? 
And I'm like, I didn't know you had a newspaper. Yeah. So, you know, they said, well, we got a reporter position open. I applied for it. I got it. Uh, it was in this town called Elizabethtown. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I, I took the up, job. Up near where I'm from. Yeah. Where are you from? I'm from Saranac. Oh, man. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm in Long Lake, and I'm familiar with Long Lake from, like, visiting the family homestead. And I'm familiar with, like, Old Forge and Saranac Lake and, like, Placid. Elizabethtown, not so much. <laughs> so I, I, I took the job. I didn't really think about it. It was actually, I want to say, seven years ago this week around the holidays. And um, I told him, I'm like, I accept the job. And then I, I remember, like, you know, I'm moving there. I, I didn't even have, like, have an apartment. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how hard can it be just to, <laughs> to, to like, go into town and, like, Find get an apartment? In the middle of nowhere. So I'm, like, looking on my phone of, like, where is Elizabethtown? And my, my dad and I are driving out there. And it just, it just didn't end. It was just, like, road and more road and, like, yep. trees and mountains. And, like, I'm, like... When are we going to get to this place? <laughs> you, like, you are in the place. Yeah. When? <laughs> so we ended up like going and like, it's like, okay, here you are in Elizabethtown. And I found like a place to rent. Um, <laughs> Which is above, someone, above someone's garage. It was above yeah. somebody's gym, actually. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Everything um, is above something else that's already standing it was, there. It was above a gym. And they would play like Eminem, like really late with all these dudes working out, and it's like shake the entire building. <laughs> um, but you know, for the first you know little while, it was almost kind of like idyllic. Of like yeah. you go from living in Hong Kong and Beijing um, to living in this like small mountainous town with like mountains and mm -hmm. pine trees and like Norman Rockwell and real running that clean kind of water. Shit. And I'm like, it was kind of like interesting to me. It was like really different, but it was like wow, this is kind of walk to work, mm -hmm. walk through the old town square with, like, monument to, like, dead war heroes and, like, yeah. people are waving to you. And I just thought it was, like, interesting, right? Some small town shit. Small town America. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There was not there was not government censorship in the way that we <laughs> yeah. just discussed. Or, How long did that last there? Lasted way too long, so <laughs> what, so that that was that was like you know seven years ago. So 2014 was interesting. 2014 was just kind of like you know okay, this is like a life that's unique. Mm -hmm. um, 2015, midway through the year, there was a crazy ass prison break from Danamora. Yeah, right. So at that time, <laughs> I got a job with like Reuters, which is like the wire service, mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. You know, basically spent a month living out of my car, covering, you know, these two guys who were running around the North Country in Saranac. <laughs> it was wild. Justin, why don't you? They talk were running about through. That? Yeah, this happened actually. Uh, they were running through the town that basically all my family lived in, my aunts and uncles, and uh, where all my friends lived in in Danamora, and my aunt has like a home on Route Three in Saranac and the corner of Kringle Road or Ryan Road and she's pretty positive that they jumped over the rock wall in her backyard no one night when it was like just starting to get dark yeah no joke and uh, then they ended up finding one of them and then the other one was separately found but that had to have been a hell of a time to be a reporter right That's, oh my god um, I was there I can't imagine <laughs> I was there at some of the key moments like uh, 
just one anecdote I'll share is right at the tail end of the hunt, you know, I was working for Reuters uh, as their correspondent, but I was also still keeping my day job. Mm-hmm. And I had a really good colleague of mine, a good buddy of mine named uh, Andy Johnston, and he works for Paul Smith's College now okay. uh, up in the Adirondacks. Yep. And he was, he was our photographer. So every day he and I would just be like in the car together for like 12 hours a day. Just following the story. Yeah. And, you know, there, with covering that prison break, you know, what a lot of people probably don't understand is how much waiting there was of like mm-hmm. every day the commander in the morning would just give like a, a briefing of like, here's what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you're in the woods and you're like, we got to find a story somehow. Yeah. We got to find something. So it's right at the tail end of it. So just for, for your listeners, there was Richard, Matt, and David Sweat. There were two of them, right? Mm-hmm. And they escaped from Danamora in early June 2015, climbed out of a manhole downtown Danamora. Yeah. Right? And, and for those that don't know what that prison looks like, Google it. <laughs> You're driving down the road, it's, and all of a sudden you just, a see these, you just see these 40-foot walls come out of nowhere, concrete walls out of nowhere. Yes, and so they, you know, they had spent, you know, and Richard Matt was kind of the brains behind the operation. Yeah, sociopath. Or was it David Sweat? I don't know which one it was, uh, but the fact that they got out through uh, a steam tunnel is pretty yeah. crazy to me. Yeah, so I'm sorry, it was actually David Sweat he was the brains of the operation mm-hmm. and I'm going back to my memory now but he was like this two bit criminal from like western New York who mm-hmm. put his how, what do you, he ended up he ended up like uh, robbing a gun star with an accomplice and then they were in they were somewhere like sorting out their like tidings and like a deputy came and they ran over the deputy Oh, so mm-hmm. he was just a complete like sociopathic yeah. scumbag yeah and then richard matt also came from like a broken home broken background and i think he ended up going to going to Danamora because he kidnapped his boss who ran like a grocery store empire and like broke all of his fingers and then beat him to death before throwing him in the river really in the buffalo area yeah That's so great. I, like and one of the things too like when you're trying to cover that and you're trying to get all the information out of the commander and everything. They were giving minimal information to the media because they didn't want to tip off the two suspects. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. And oftentimes we would get these tips or the, these leads, and that's what you have to go on for the day, right? Mm-hmm. Other days you'd have nothing. So right before what ended up happening was towards the end of the manhunt, we were all focused up. You're from the area, Justin, so you would know. I, I want to say it's like Franklin County. Um, yep, Malone area. Malone area, you got it. Mm-hmm. Where it was one of those days where there was nothing going on. Nothing going on. And my photographer and I were just driving around in my car. And what, what these manhunts is you'd have shifting barriers, shifting uh, roadblocks. So the state troopers might have a road blocked off, but then they would move it based on intel. So they'd okay. be shifting. So we're driving around in the middle of the forest, and then we found ourselves behind 
the roadblock that had like shifted. Oh, they're behind you. Go to the next one. So we were like in the area that we shouldn't have been in. So we were driving and then, you know, we're, it's like endless. And we get to like the troopers guarding the road from the other side. And they're like, what the fuck are you guys? What are you you doing? And they ordered us out of the car and they were very nice. The troopers throughout the entire time were extremely professional, very polite, top, top class guys. And they were very polite, but they were like, okay, just hold back here for a minute. And, you know, investigators came and they split us up. And they were like, why are you guys here and they're at this like, time? they're like, did you guys get out of the car at, at all for anything? And we're like, no. We're just reporters and we're looking for a story and we're sorry. We're behind the <laughs> enemy, enemy lines. Yeah. We didn't mean it. We're, we're cool. Like, we'll, we'll cooperate, but just let us go. And they split us up and it was like a really hardcore interrogation. Really? And they're like, are you sure you guys didn't, like, get out of the car to, like, go take a piss or, like, go to the bathroom? Because they want to search your vehicle. No. We're like, no, we didn't get out of the car to take a piss. I would tell you if I had to take a piss. I don't. Yeah, but why does that matter? Because what happened was somebody called in a report of them breaking into, like, cabins. And my colleague fit the description. (laughs) So, literally, there was, like, a credible report that they had seen them. And they're like okay well we just wanted to vet it to like really make sure and then they told us right before they let us go they were like literally we got a report that these guys are here so just get the fuck out of here and be safe <laughs> a few days later is when they shot richard matt who was literally <laughs> in the neighborhood and his downfall and we later learned in ben stiller's document or his film uh his his limited series on showtime mm-hmm. is that Yep, he was drinking too much, and Sweat was like, bro, we gotta, like, depart. And then Richard Matt was drunk on, like, purple schnapps, and he had a gun, and he shot, like, a, a trailer, like, going down the road. And that, that's mm-hmm. what led to his downfall, because he took a pot shot at a trailer. And everyone heard it. And then the driver called it in, and then within moments, federal agents, like, capped him. But really? We, that was the area that we were in. So literally, like, when we got detained... And the state troopers were like, there's reports. I mean, literally, they could have been in, like, that cabin or that cabin yeah, or yeah. that cabin. So that was just kind of, like, mind-blowing, you know? Yeah. And then, so they, they got him. Um, and, you know, we, at the time, this is, like, right in Malone. I don't know if it was Malone proper. But, again, when they got, when they shot him, Matt, my colleague and I were already kind of behind the area yeah so we were like very close to be able to get that story that's cool that's, cool. that's wild that's a little bit different than covering the nightlife in uh, beijing <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. A, man, a manhunt in the uh northern adirondacks Canadian border killers area. yeah so that's kind of the long-winded i mean your question mm-hmm. was like you know why so long in the adirondacks so that kind of got done and kept you there longer that kind of kept me there I continued, you know, to have the job with Reuters covering the, all the court stuff. So, you know, we haven't talked about Joyce Mitchell, right? <laughs> She's the yeah. uh, the prison seamstress who kind of uh, aided the whole escape. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, ground beef. The ground beef. She, she put the tools in the ground beef, and then Gene Palmer, the guard, you know, got them through. So, I mean, that that kind of, you know, didn't even really wrap up until early 2016. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, uh, 
I started working on a lot of investigative pieces with um, some of like the deeper stories in the Adirondacks and continued to like really kind of like the job and you know the, the opportunity that it afforded to me. Um, over so, Pete, next next thing that comes to mind with the Adirondacks is Mary Lou Whitney's husband, husband selling the uh, massive estate. Oh, Have you covered God. anything to do with that? Not at all. That was after I left. Oh, uh, okay. Did but, you go from there to to here in Schenectady? Yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening was, I mean, I feel so awkward. I don't talk about this myself this much. It's okay, man. That's why you're here. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> you have an interesting background. We appreciate you talking about it. I appreciate the uh, the time. But Before you get into going from there to here, I uh, just want to step back to D22. Mm-hmm. That scene, the music there, was it primarily Chinese bands? Or did, like in world tours, did you have some uh, punk rock bands from here? Or it, any bands from here the, go over there? You hit the nail right on the head. It'd be um, mostly domestic bands. And the, the leader of that label, his name is Mike Pettis. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a vision for really kind of developing and giving a platform to young kids and, and give them a platform to make it mm-hmm. um, and the booking manager Nevin my friend who on the label and I'll send Nevin a link to this podcast when it goes up because I'm sure he, he, he'd love to hear it and pass it along you know he really uh, and he's still dedicated to this day of nurturing that talent and also kind of bringing over the bands to embody that kind of DIY ethos to D22. So he'd very, very carefully cultivate the type of foreign, when I mean foreign, I mean non-Chinese bands that they would bring over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an example would be a band called DOA, which is a Canadian uh, hardcore punk band that were like the pioneers of hardcore punk in Canada. Mm-hmm. And he felt so strongly and he knew how much that band would mean to like young Chinese punks that he would like bring them over, even if it meant like very small profit margins, hmm. right? And DOA played um, winter, and you know only several dozen people came, but it was good. It was like almost like a house party, and that's he, you know, that the attitude would always be like, well, I wish more people would have come, but if just a few punks got to meet their heroes, then it's all worth it. Yeah. So he kind of uh, brought that kind of mentality to how he would book shows. Hmm. Great. Did you get to meet uh, DOA or any of the foreign bands? One of the, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> laughing because uh, one of the uh, the biggest people that I got to meet was uh, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin. That's oh, cool. Kid. Yeah, who's cool. like an nice. icon, and. You know, Jimmy Page is like secretive and mysterious, and you know he's not really doing a lot these days, right? Mm-hmm. Like Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin is active, and he's always been active. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page, though, he always had this kind of mysterious kind of like um, persona into the occult and that type of thing. But you know, in a testament to Mike Pettis's again, the owner of the place and the uh, economics professor. You know, this D22 became like a, almost like a, a lodestar or like a north star for people to seek out for what was going on in China. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the exact details for, for why Jimmy Page is in town. I don't remember. But I, as, as I, as I understand, if, if I remember correctly, 
you know, I think Jimmy asked his handlers, like, well, where, where do we go see some live music around here? Who's got it? And they were like, D22. That's cool. So my buddy, Nevin, tipped me off, and he's like, don't tell anyone this. You gotta get here. Don't tell anyone this, but Jimmy fucking Page <laughs> is at my bar right now. Like, you know, he's at my bar. And at the time, it was a Sunday night, and it used to be folk night. And I don't like folk. I never really cared for it. So there's all these, like, kids watching, like, folk, Chinese folk and all that shit playing. And there's Jimmy Page just chilling. And uh, I ended up tipping off one of my friends, uh, also into, like, uh, you know, hard rock and loud music and shit. Told him, like, don't tell anyone. So he and I are, like, staring at him <laughs> like schoolgirls, you know? And my friend is, like, the most cynical, wizened, hardened, like, punk guy. And he's, like, like a fucking schoolgirl. <laughs> And he, he's like, I gotta do it. And he finally like went over and he's like, Mr. Page, I love you. What's up, Len? And and I'm sitting there watching it. And you know, Jimmy Page was like actively engaged. I mean, he's like one of the most iconic musician, rock musicians of all time. And he's like talking to my friend. He's like, Oh, what kind of bands do you like? And what's good about the scene? And they really got into this kind of like discussion of just like two music fans just like talking. That's cool. Like and my friend comes back, and he's just, like, running from ear to ear. And I said, fuck it, I'll go over it. So I went over and did the same thing. And I'm like, uh... <laughs> and it was just, like, you know, very Hi. cool. He's just like, oh, what do you think about the scene? I'm like, well, what do you think about, you know, what you saw? And he offered, like, a very measured kind of analysis of, like, hmm. well, it's, it all seems, like, very good. And, you know, these bands seem to have this, and they've got that. And, you know, we shook hands and left. But it was just, like, a very kind of down-to-earth cool kind of experience yeah that's cool yeah awesome did your friend shake his hand yeah it's one of those things like i've never washed my hands. yeah i was gonna say as he washed his hands i don't think so i gotta ask him <laughs> he, he hadn't up until covid started yeah he had to actually that that made me want to ask you the mask wearing in china that's always kind of been a thing yeah new for us mm-hmm. here but what's your take on that The mask wearing, that's a great question. Like, I didn't know how, I don't know how to really ask the question. I, I'm actually reading a book right now uh, by a Chinese journalist. Her name is Xinran. And she wrote a book called The Good Women of China, which talked a lot about feminism in China in like the 80s and 90s, telling all these like terrible stories about like the one child family policy mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. And I think, if I remember correctly, her take is that masks originated in China just for people to be practical and keep their faces warm in the winter. Okay. (laughs) And I think over time, it kind of like once H1N1 hit in 2008, 2009 in Beijing for that, that's when people started wearing them to be like more proactive okay. and then it, then it and then it kind of gravitated to well now we're just going to wear them because the pollution is fucking terrible okay so you think it's more for the pollution at after after h1n1 i think it's a convergence again it was a convergence of being practical to keep our faces warm mm-hmm. to pollution the bad the environment and the pollution and then just general flu season okay um and mm-hmm. i know that it's viewed as a gesture of kindness to the other person and respect. Mm-hmm. 
of like I'm wearing a mask because I don't want to get you sick. Yeah. So take that as a sign of comfort. If we're on the subway, I'm wearing a mask. Now, why do you think Americans have such a hard time with that? I don't even want to comment on that. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a reporter, so I got to stay neutral yeah, with all that yep, stuff. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> is um, that is that hard to stay neutral? I don't have any opinions. Yeah. Just state the cold hard facts. I mean, like we've talked about so much tonight. I mean, I spent so much of my formative career in a different country doing different things. So I'm not really opinionated on some of the stuff happening here. It's I just don't. It's I don't know. It's it's a great question. I don't. I have a to- I have a topic outside of COVID that sure. I want to ask you about. Then, um, big story in Clifton Park obviously was Nexium. Mm. Did you have anything to cover on Nexium during your time reporting? Not at all. Nothing. Not a single bit. <laughs> I'm sorry wow, to disappoint that, that you. Be another one. Why don't, why don't I interview you about that? <laughs> yeah. Why don't you know? No. Tell me no. about Nexium. The only thing I know is uh, what I you know. Just this guy uh, was recently uh, convicted. On yeah, years. no, it just seemed like a wild story. I was really <laughs> hoping you covered that. I'm one. sorry, man. I'm sorry to disappoint you. What's that's the, okay? No, no, no. What would, what would be the best story you think you've covered in your career? It's a broad question. Could it be more specific? Most, most entertaining. Like what? What really? Like when you woke up in the morning, you're like, I'm excited to continue covering this topic. Like, really drove you as like it was fulfilling to like be a reporter. Highlight and cover it. of your career, man. Highlight of my career. I mean, like that. The thing that you say, like this is why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. I guess. You know, COVID would come to mind. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously beyond heartbreaking what's happened, not only with the amount of people that have lost their lives, the amount of people who have lost their livelihood, but the sheer unnecessariness of all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you mean by that? Today's. Thursday, December 17th, there's over 300,000 Americans dead. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, we're involved in a culture war over masks. Maybe you will get me to talk about masks. Yeah. <laughs> That's a skilled uh, component of an interviewer uh, who yeah. gets people to talk about things you don't want to talk about. But, um, you know, we're at a, we're, you know, everything has become politicized, like c- coming down to masks, keeping businesses open, keeping them closed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see that happening in any other country, really. Okay. But, I mean, so I, I would I would say arguably this is the most important story in my career. Yeah. Um, from the very beginning of, you know, the beginning of the shutdowns in mid-March mm-hmm. when uh, a cascading effect up until the present day, it's still going on. Mm-hmm. And I think that the role mm-hmm. of uh, journalism is more important than ever because in this country you have two kind of realities now, right? You've mm-hmm. got what is the reality, and you've got an alternate reality that's kind of cropped up of based on... Fake news. Based on elected officials actively propagating falsehoods and a whole segment of the country believing that and mm-hmm. buying into it. Um, and, you know, elected officials who just stoke the culture wars. Mm-hmm. And what, what it's led to is like a lack of uh, agreement on the basic facts. 
Mm-hmm. Does that make your job more difficult? That's a good question. Yeah, of course. Everything's yeah. so politicized now. You have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. Sorry to bring it up. It's a sore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how do you feel? As, as, how do you feel as uh, somebody who works in an industry that has been impacted more severely, arguably, than any other? Well, it sucks. But I think it's kind of... Uh, I think if we could go back and do it over again, I mean, just do a one-month shutdown, no one leave, stock up on food. I mean, I know the logistics behind that probably aren't really feasible, but I mean, I wonder if that would have stopped it earlier in its tracks than here we are nine months later. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't be as broke as I am now. Well, what would you like to see from government? How can they help you? You know, I mean, Cuomo did it the right way. Not as in helping us, but, I mean, you know, he didn't want that backlash of, let's shut all the bars and restaurants down again. He just went with this, you know, bullshit idea of, oh, we'll just do 10 p.m. They can make that work. But, I mean, he's got a staff. He know, they know the you know, you know the the stats. No one goes out until nine, nine thirty. So doing a ten PM shutdown, it's just kind of putting us in that position where we're just gonna shut ourselves down. And that's where I'm at here and a lot of other places are going that way right now too. But we need I mean we need assistance. Everyone always thinks because it's a bar or restaurant that the owners are making all this money. That ain't the truth. They go into a place that they see it's busy. And it's the same thing I tell people. They're like, oh, my God. It's, they go, it's so busy. You must be doing great. I go, you just got here, right? And they're like, yeah. I go, so did everyone else. <laughs> I go, I got, I got one hour to make my money now. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make up for the other six hours that no one was here. Well, if they're going to shut, if they're going to mandate businesses be shut down, there needs to be a way to ensure that you could survive that whether it be offering some kind of payments yeah i mean i don't know why they haven't i mean we're mainly the entertainment industry is basically the main you know industry that has felt the effects you know i can't really think of another uh kind of business like that has taken the toll than we have you know i think again not offering an opinion but but here is one. But if <laughs> you want people, if you want to ensure the virus is not spreading and ensure people are safe and you're going to mandate the shutdown of businesses, it might behoove the government to provide some assistance to those businesses to ensure they don't go under while they're shut down. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if that would have been a more viable option than doing all the unemployment and uh, the the uh, the extra stipend of money, you know, instead of just doing that, just, you know, they see what we do. And they can say, oh, here are your records. We're just going to maintain this, this uh, monetary value. And then just keep us going. I mean, we could be shut down, but just keep that flooding, that flowing in, and we can, you know, send it off to everyone else who deserves it. And I think it's been presented as a false dichotomy at the federal level where it's being framed as 
public health safeguards versus economic survival. But that's mm -hmm. almost a false dichotomy because I think a, a more sophisticated approach would be, like, like I said, to ensure the businesses don't go under when you're ensuring the public health safeguards, mm -hmm. like you've seen in Europe and like you've seen in other countries who have kind of managed to get this thing under control. Mm -hmm. But if you look at where we are now, we're nine months into the pandemic, there's 3,000 people dying a day, the mm -hmm. most ever. There's over 300,000 dead. Here in the capital region, Schenectady County, Albany County, demolishing hospitalization and positives. Mm -hmm. what, what have we learned from this? What have we done right? Like, what? not only are our small businesses suffering and the restaurant and the, the bar industry devastated, mm -hmm. but people are still getting sick and people are still dying at, at record numbers. Yeah. So what do we learn from this? It's like, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the movie Burn After Reading, Mm -hmm. which is a Coen Brothers film. Yeah. But at the end, it's like this calamity of like disasters. And then like there's uh, like a FBI guy or a CIA guy just like sitting and his assistant gives him a report and he looks at it and he's like, well, what do we fucking learn from all this? And then, then it turns to black and it's over, yeah. right? Yeah. We're in a worse position now than when we started. <laughs> That's a good point. So, so Pete, outside of reporting, who is Pete? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what do you do when you're not reporting? <laughs> your, What's your personal life? Your, your listeners are going to get so bored talking to me or listening <laughs> to me, right? No, I'm just curious. What, what's, what's your free time consumed of? Free time? Um, cooking a lot. I keep telling Mitch he's going to learn how to cook. I gotta learn how to cook. You know, going back to the pandemic, I think I ran into Mitch. He had like a beginning of the pandemic, like a truck full of cold cuts or something. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you get back from like Restaurant Depot and you had like a truck full of like meat or something? I, I just, lunch I went, I, I, didn't, I don't know how to grocery shop. I walked in, I got my lunch meat, cereal, bagels, pancake mix, eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a breakfast. Uh, Aficionado. <laughs> yeah. no, cooking, uh, cooking is great. I like to cook. I like to read. Right now I'm studying Chinese again. Kind of the uh, pandemic kind of, you know, really kind of got me to reopen relationships with some of my contacts over there. That's cool. So I study Chinese now. Uh, I'm formally enrolled in school. It's kind of a very harsh, a very harsh um, learning curve, getting back into it. Mm-hmm. Writing characters hundreds of times a day. Wow. You know, so that's kind of like a... It's something that is pleasant and it turns into hatred and then it goes back to yeah. pleasant on a needle based on... <laughs> so, so is it true if you don't use it, you lose it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, you know, one of the things living up in the Adirondacks is like, you know, you might see a Chinese person like at a restaurant but there's virtually, it's all white. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the most di least diverse places ever. Like, so mm -hmm. the language skills like really did atrophy, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that you, you did, didn't you do a story back in, uh, in the, the midst of quarantine that you actually were able to break out some of your language? Yeah, I did. I interviewed, um, it's a great question. And one of the reasons that got me to actually studying again, because yeah. I was at a gun shop um, 
up on the Niskayuna Schenectady border. There's like a gun shop over by mm-hmm. Mohawk Commons. Yeah. Is that what it's called, Mohawk Commons? I think it's called Upstate. Okay. Something. But I went in there and it was just packed of like people buying guns and like you can almost hear them like cocking in the aisle and it was just like <laughs> like a South Park episode. <laughs> and <laughs> there was like this Chinese guy clutching like a note. You know, he had a piece of paper in his hand, you know, and it was like Remington whatever. Mm-hmm. Like Remington. This is the gun he wanted. Bullets, you know. And I, I was talking to him in Chinese and I'm like you know, and then I realized, like, wow, my Chinese is, like, fucking terrible. <laughs> so I, like, barely made it through the interview. And then I went to, like, another gun shop, and there was more Chinese there. Same thing. Like, there were, like, RPI students who were, like, Buying guns. Buying fucking guns, because they're, like, I'm going to get, like, killed over here in America. What, what do you mean? Well, that, you know, people are calling it the China virus, and... That it came from, like, China, and the president's, like, stoking, you know, like, racial... Tension and hatred. Mm-hmm. So they were scared. There was a direct line between the president's rhetoric and how they felt. And again, I don't want to be too political, but there's a direct correlation when you know you have Republicans using this this terminology, the China virus, the Wuhan virus. Mm-hmm. If you're talking to like people from China who are telling you I've been threatened, this is how I feel, mm-hmm. it's hard to dispute the impacts of that. Yeah. How can you spin that? So <laughs> they're like, all of them have the same story. We're arming up because we've, we've been harassed. I got a friend in Queens who was beaten up. Really? You know, I've got this, I've got that, I can tell you all these stories, we all talk to each other. All of them were buying guns. So that kind of led me into being like, I should really kind of resurrect my language ability to mm-hmm. just better able to tell their stories. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so how did you get from the Adirondacks to here? Saw the J Street pub opened. I saw the J Street pub <laughs> opened. Like, I got to beat this guy. No, um, no, like I ended up, so now we're getting into like 2018, 2019, no, 2018. Mm-hmm. And at, the, at this time I was done. I was like, I've lived in the Adirondacks for four or five years. I had been promoted to managing editor at the newspaper. I was making good money. Cost of life is low. And my parents lived at Syracuse, which is comparatively close in Beijing, right? Beijing is a two-day long plane ride. Syracuse is a four-hour car ride. Mm-hmm. So I, it was nice to see the parents and you know live in a place where like the lifestyle was cheap. But you know, for, for a long time, I was just kind of like, there ain't nothing for me here. It's in the middle of the woods. I'm not really an outdoor person. You know, there's no girls around. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just like everything is dead. Um, and I think that this is an issue that Adirondack officials are acutely aware of, of like their towns are dying. They're dying. Like, mm-hmm. there's no young people. I mean, Saranac Lake is a bright spot, Lake Placid. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, in the Adirondack Park, it's just a total brain drain. And like, so, in, you know, it's pro- I was promoted to management at the time. So that's an entirely different job. And then I'm like, I got to get out of here. Like, it's been nice living in the Adirondacks, but it's time to like get back to, to real life. So I was contemplating what I'm going to do. You know, do I get a job and... Do I go back to Beijing or Hong Kong? Do I move to the city? What's it going to be? 
And uh, this editor for a newspaper called the Daily Gazette kind of pinged me. And he's like, hey, man, um, I got a job opening. And, you know, Dave Lombardo, Dave Lombardo uh, used to work for the Times Union. And now he uh, works for the Capitol Press Room, which is like a, a like a radio and a podcast okay. show. So our competition. And he's gonna hate me for getting this wrong. <laughs> Capitol Press Room, and they're they're on TV too, so they're a TV. You can edit all this to make it sound good, right? <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> but he, no, it's the Capitol Press Room, and they've got a TV component, and they've got a podcast that. And they've got online stuff. That's where he now works. And he's, he used to work at the Gazette. And he's like, hey, man, like, they need somebody. Do you want to come down? And kind of Dave talked up the job a lot. And then he kind of led to me, you know, building that relationship with Schenectady. Mm-hmm. So I came down. I did the interview with the Gazette. And I really, you know, thought that it was a terrific opportunity. Miles Reed, the editor, is a terrific guy. Uh, total, totally like a font of like knowledge of everything in Schenectady in the capital region. Really? I mean, this guy's mind is like, he's got this encyclopedic institutional knowledge, which has really <laughs> helped me be a terrific reporter, you know? So yeah. he, I did the interview with him and I'm, I remember sitting in, in his office and he's like, well, it's a good job, but it's kind of violent here. I'm like, I'll take it. It's violent. I'm like, okay, you know, like, I'm into covering crime and and urban issues like blight and crime and, mm-hmm. you know, how to aging urban cities kind of build back from years of disinvestment. Mm-hmm. So I took that job in February of uh, 2019. How's all that crime? Believe it or not, I got here and, I mean... <laughs> You know, Schenectady is a remarkable example of a city that's kind of like rebounded from the precipice. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm only mentioning that he warned me of the crime, not as a way to belittle the city, but just just kind of like the city's reputation, right? Mm -hmm. He's like, it's a high crime city, it's Rust Belt. You know, a a large part of your job is you know, covering that. I hope you're okay with covering crime. I hope you're okay with waking up in the middle of the night and covering a murder or homicide or Mm -hmm. or something on fire. But last year, 2019 was my first year on the job and it was like very kind of sedate and calm. I mean, Mm -hmm. there wasn't, uh, right before I got here, uh, there was like the first gunshot related homicide in like mm-hmm. 18 months or something yeah wow really and, long. Then, and then there was a long stretch of time throughout uh 2019 where i think there was three homicides last year but none of them were gun related really so it was a mm-hmm. period of time where gun violence was kind of declining and at the same time here in schenectady you know development was surging mm-hmm. right you had massive state investment with the dri as you know about yeah sitting on the panel what's dri it's a downtown revitalization initiative. Yeah. So the, st- the state of New York, um, every year for the past four years, I think, Something like that, has yeah. uh, kind of launched a competition. Uh, and each of the state's regions uh, can compete for like, you know. The $10 million grant. $10 million grant. The cities within that region. But the idea behind it is that leverages like over $100 million of investment. 
Correct. Mm -hmm. So say like you're a developer. It's, basically the, it's the kindling to it. Yeah. So say yeah. You're, you're a developer coming in, and you're like, hey, this is our their plan. Our plan, like you know, what would really make this beneficial for us is if you could shoot us six hundred thousand. But the project costs five and a half, six million dollars. It's kind of a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you. It's it's almost like a thank you to like, oh, you know, for coming in. Yeah, here, do your project. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. This is the way I look at it. Well, that's the way that it's designed to be, mm -hmm. where they, just to be clear, each of the 10 regions, each of the cities in those regions compete against each other. So Albany will turn in an application, Glens Falls, Schenectady, Troy, Cohoes, what have you. And the state goes through and they kind of mark all that. Mm -hmm. And Schenectady received the $10 million last November. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my first year covering Schenectady was kind of like a lot of the economic development aspect. Um, even before the DRI was awarded in November, there's a lot of projects going on, a lot of redevelopment, a lot of stuff that doesn't really get publicized because it's not sexy, mm -hmm. like federal money to improve Crane Street, yeah. right, to like make sidewalks and plant trees and bus stops and mm -hmm. to make it look better, yeah. you know, and a lot of it's just not glamorous, but it's important work for the city's kind of resurgence and rehabilitation, right? Mm -hmm. And there's some stuff going on downtown, like your place, Mitch, right? Like this place. Yeah, oh, right, here, yeah. The J Street Pub of young people moving into the city and opening up kind of businesses that help revitalize long dormant. Well, I try. Right, but there's also Frog Alley. <laughs> Again, yeah, Frog, Frog Alley is one of the things that sealed the deal, believe it or not, for me to, to come work here. Really? It's because what? I interviewed with the Daily Gazette, and I'd never been to Schenectady. I think I'd heard about it once. <laughs> and I did the interview, and I'm like, well, this might be somewhere I'm going to move. And I see this, like, huge brewery being built. Yeah. Right? And I'm like... And then another apartment complex. I see an apartment complex and a brewery and, like, all these things happening. And I'm like, this is a city where things are, are happening. I mean, this is not like... Yeah, they're having trouble keeping up with just the luxury housing demand. Yeah. So, I mean, granted, it's not like, you know, some neighborhoods in the city... Um, but, I mean, I, I was like, this is a city that has things going on. Mm -hmm. It's not like, like a decaying Rust Belt city in, like, <laughs> Michigan or something where there's, like, a tumbleweed blowing through it, you know? Yeah. There's, like, buildings with, like, scaffolds and everything. And I'm like, okay, this is okay. something interesting, right? So here you are. So here I am. Sitting here. Having Thanks. an IPA, talking too much. You're actually having a frog alley. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, you're having a Frog Alley beer from the place that brought you here. Podcast over drinks. Podcast over drinks. I feel like I've That's been right. talking for like 100 minutes right now. <laughs> uh, hour and 23, actually. Yeah. Well, Pete, we appreciate you taking time. We'll wrap it up with that, too. And yeah. uh, you've shared quite a bit. It's greatly appreciated. You've got an interesting background and story. And I uh, look forward to hearing feedback from the listeners, too. It's our longest podcast. So how can I promote this podcast? Is it on Spotify yet? Kind of tell us tell us where we can find it to listen to. Yeah, we'll Spotify. be able to find this on all the major platforms. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Mm -hmm. um, and then we are building up the social as well. So you the goal of the podcast, uh, get a few episodes recorded so we have a little bit of a backlog so that there's not a gap. And uh, we'll be continuing to seek out interesting and influential people in the area and uh, help spread their story to uh, new people that might want to learn about them. 
like you, yourself. I'm neither inf- interesting nor influential. Yeah, uh, yeah, you are. But I want to take a photo of you, all you guys, <laughs> while I'm here to put it out on social media now. So we're we're all getting in it. <laughs> well, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, I will. Actually, my last question for you. Oh, man. Last one. It's just a gotcha one, right? Well, it's an easy one. If you could think of one person for us to ask to come on the show that you could get us in contact with, who would it be? (laughs) Interesting and influential, right? That's that's the metric. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna take that answer offline because okay. I don't know if, if, if this individual will be comfortable me yeah. sharing their name. You don't want to blow up their spot. They're gonna yeah. be. They're gonna yeah. be a good. Yes. They're gonna be a good interview. <laughs> to be determined. I will give right? Mitch. I will give Mitch props right there for asking for a referral to the next individual. So nice work. Man. Referral is coming. All right. Thanks. Ha- yeah. All right, gentlemen. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for dealing with. Thanks, me. Pete. No, no problem. Problem. Up with us. Yeah. <laughs> See you guys. Thanks for listening.